Welcome to the Type Slay podcast, the show that is for women by women. Type Slay is meant for any woman who is looking to unlock their potential, needs motivation, or is just looking to find a community of like-minded Type Slay women. I'm Jane Dufresne. And I'm Carly Bell. Today on the Type Slay podcast, we are interviewing Meryl Gerstenmeier, the former CEO of a local leading landscape architecture and civil engineering firm who built the business up and then recently sold it to a national firm. We explore what makes her Type Slay, tips for building a business, leadership advice, and strategies she used to sell her business for top value. Listen up as there are so many golden nuggets throughout the podcast as our conversations takes many turns and left us feeling not only motivated, but courageous and powerful. All right, today we are with Meryl Gerstenmeier. And Meryl, thank you so much for being a part of our Type Slate podcast. I'm thrilled welcome, to be here. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Tell the audience, um, what's your title? Who do you work for? What's your deal? <laughs> um, Meryl Gerstenmeier. I was the CEO of a design firm in Richmond here, and um, we recently got acquired by a very large engineering firm, and um, so now I am working there, navigating that, and um, that's where I am now. So So you're still working there now that the acquisition is finalized? Yes, we've merged our employees with theirs. They did have a local satellite office here. Um, and so we're happy to be part of that group. And it's a little bit of a culture integration uh, process because we were very small compared to them. They're an 1,800-person firm. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So let's back up yeah. to get the full story here. So tell us how this acquisition came about um, and a little bit about your background and the journey that got you where you are today. Well, my background was mainly in sales. Um, but then what happened is during the recession, uh, my husband owned a small firm, which was hurting. And what type of firm was it? It was a landscape architecture firm. We mm -hmm. were a land design firm and had a great reputation in Richmond and beyond. Um, but with the recession, landscape architecture became very discretionary, as did almost everything. Yes. <laughs> and so um, he kind of approached me and said, I need your help. Uh, can you come in and sort of streamline some things? He knew that I had um, a sales background, but that really wasn't what anybody was thinking about then. It was really, we, we were a little bit in uh, panic mode because... He, we had kind of between the two of us we'd sort of determined that his business manager had been stealing from him and wow. so yeah he'd kind of asked me and said something's not right here can you come in and do some um audits can you kind of look around and see what's going on and sure enough as soon as I got in there um my background had been with small business as well I had owned a few small businesses but mm -hmm. they were retail which is really tough mm -hmm. and um they didn't last the recession so oh, I when you say recession is that 2007 2008 yep okay exactly so I had decided to go back to school and um I, I didn't I don't have a college degree so that was my dirty little secret that I kind of nobody <laughs> really knows about me but uh I had to get out and start working when I was young and I just never got around you know we were so busy just mm -hmm. building our life at, back then that I didn't have time to go back to school and I thought well this will be the time sure. to try to get get a degree and so I had was taking four classes maybe five five I was taking Spanish calculus literature history and one other that was um ancient history so there was uh, I mean I was nothing very like very business, but it, nothing because no I was just trying to get I just wanted a liberal arts and, um, you know, one thing I learned about business, I, I walked into that company and immediately had to just stop the bleeding. We just started looking at the books and we could tell there was something wrong, but there was a lot of um, deception in mm -hmm. entries into what 
was being the checks that were being written and where they were going and 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 so you had to you know kind of uncover it took a long time for us to figure that out was kind of okay where's the problem we got to investigate what what's actually going on here and that was while I was in school so I would go to school all day long and then write my papers and do my homework (laughs) and then at after that I would do forensic accounting and try to figure out oh my gosh and like every night it was just like are you kidding me? I mean, it was it was insane. So um, by then we had escorted this person off the property and I had reached back out and said, we found some discrepancies and we're going to have to talk. And so that was oh the first gosh. six months of my um, of my experience. And may I ask you how old you were when you were going to school and doing all this? My son had just graduated from high school and I went back. It was I was probably 40 47 Mm -hmm. never too late no absolutely not and I so what I had to put that on hold too so I ended up getting two years of college and um, the thing I would say about what I knew to do I I didn't you you just I've said just instinctively I just went in and kind of started figuring things out but what I learned is that I didn't know what to do and I think it worked to my advantage that I knew that I didn't have the knowledge, mm-hmm. but I knew I had the skill. So I've, I'm kind of good at everything, but mm-hmm. not great at one thing. Mm-hmm. So I came in there. I ended up being the financial officer and the marketing, you know, CMO and CFO and <laughs> COO and CIO and blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. And so, um, and CEO. And, but what I did that I think was really helpful was I went and looked for experts to tell me what, you know, to Mm -hmm. tell me their experiences Mm -hmm. and what happens next. And I read voraciously books like Black Box Thinking and For Execution, For uh, Disciplines of Execution and Traction. And I did it. And I think when um, I also joined an organization called the Council of CEOs, which, where I got a lot of practical advice and knowledge on how other CEOs run companies and the problem. We all kind of run into the same problems. Mm-hmm. And what I have found is those companies that don't do that, that think they already know or they they don't invest in that kind mm-hmm. of, because you can't go to school for it. Right. Um, Unless you're in a really large company, but I'm talking about small firms, Mm -hmm. uh, small businesses. Um, I think that all of that paid off because we just were, I guess, ignorant enough to implement all Mm -hmm. of the stuff that they were saying in there. And it worked really well. And so especially the four disciplines of execution, that kind of was a game changer Mm -hmm. for us. And I would really recommend that book. So tell so you come in you're really helping to stop this bleed there's a there's a big issue tell us about kind of what you were doing from from that entry point to becoming the CEO of the company Well I came in just to kind of help with the forensic accounting and with um just invoicing and kind of doing some bookkeeping and what happened was I realized really quickly that somebody had to go out and sell and we couldn't <laughs> rely on our architects and engineers right, to do that ringing. yeah so i was like well that's my background i can do that but i had no idea how to sell this kind of professional services mm-hmm. to anyone and i didn't know what to do did you have any experience in b2b not really B, okay not really um and, but is that was that your primary audience b2b or were you okay b2b Absolutely. And so we actually got a consultant to come in who um, helped at least with strategy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we didn't have the money for it, but we found a way. Most of the time, the way we paid for everything is I just didn't pay myself. I just didn't yeah. pay myself for about three years. Yeah. Can I ask a question real quick about the strategy? Was that was that a game changer in any way to kind of lay the foundation and to have a strategy in place? Because and hopefully it is, and if not, I'll edit this out. But, <laughs> but that's something that's that, you know, I talk to our clients about and our potential clients is having a foundation, a strong foundation to build on. It's not the pretty work, you know, it's not as as nice as like the satisfaction that you get from a website redesign, you know, where you can 
graphically see, visually see the changes. Um, but was that monumental in any sort of way? Yes. What she did was at least explain what you need to do. And what you really need to do is not easy, and most people will not do it, mm -hmm. and nobody was doing it in our space, mm -hmm. and except for a few people, a few architects that we knew. But you have to just get out and go and meet. And do the and, work. And talk to every client that you ever want to work at. I went to everything. I went to every networking event, trade org program. I Then I followed up with everyone. Um, we had represented we're a design firm and we had uh, site design and so we had representative work at U of R from years past and we had representative work at VCU so the only place at the time where there was real money was in the universities and they were building and so what I did was just go on the road and went and met with every single university planner every university architect every facilities person uh, asked them what other firms do you like to work with because most of our work was procured through the architect and the architect had to put us on a team. Mm -hmm. So just going and talking to the owner wasn't enough because mm -hmm. they weren't going to hire us directly. They were going to hire us through an architect. So what I had to do then is go back to all those architects and say, hey, I met with Joe Blow at JMU and they're, they've got a parking deck that they want to put out soon. And pretty soon I became the person in that industry that everybody knew I was kind of the legs that and they called and they would say hey have you met with college women and Mary lately what do they got going and so I became kind of an intel mm -hmm. spoke so was that something that came naturally to you really putting yourself out there and doing the networking and showing up like that or was that something that you had to kind of strengthen that muscle a little bit well I think it came natural it doesn't typically come natural to engineers or architects. Mm -hmm. So uh, here again is an example of how I'm pretty good at everything, but not great at everything. If I were in a company that required salespeople and it was a big sales, I probably wouldn't win any awards or anything. I would just be pretty good. In this industry, I was outstanding because I had no competition. Nobody had any sales background. What do you think made you so outstanding though within this industry? talking to people I I don't you know I don't I would I enjoy cracking jokes and talking to people and meeting people and that mm -hmm. kind of stuff where a lot of the architects and engineers are introverts and that's not doesn't come natural to them and but so you're also relentless uh, persistent and you're methodical and strategic and it sounds yeah, like you so knew that you couldn't just you go to plan. the owner you had to yes you, you to work the to. plan and you keep working the plan all the good salespeople that I know have plans and they work the plan and they never stop even when they're really successful they still work the plan that is correct and the plan is really I don't know I mean the plan was just get as much information as you possibly can right. because in our industry Intel is the currency and so if every architect it's so um, competitive for them that if you can get it can have a scintilla of information that gives them an edge over someone else because the truth is in many cases that architect's going to be as as good as this architect on the project and it's really hard for these um, universities or municipalities to pick mm -hmm. I mean I know they're just sometimes just eeny meeny money mo because by the time you get to the final two one's going to be as good as the other and so um it's just kind of the look of the draw for some of those people mm -hmm. and what my job was was to get on both That's of those teams you on both teams yes the, I, it wasn't and i got to where i knew who was going to win or i knew who was going to be, be shortlisted on a 150 million dollar project at uva i knew who was going to i knew so you the, had to get on those i teams. knew the four teams and i did i didn't have time because not my my whole job wasn't just sales Right. I, I was like doing finance. I was doing all the uh, invoicing and all, all the uh, everything. Gosh, and sales and business development is a full time job in and of itself. Well, I just had to be very surgical, and that's why I didn't waste time on getting on every team. Like I notice a lot of people are like they're very proud if they've gotten on twenty teams, and it's like, well, twenty teams are not going to win it. Mm -hmm. And what I mean, occasionally people would just call you, and you put on a. When I say a team, we're talking about a design team that is chasing 
a request for proposal that's out there for a big building okay. or a you know an out of ground or a big expansion or things like that okay. and and there there was a big boom in university building for a while so we built up our public sector that way and then i realized you know we don't want to be too much in public sector and our bread and butter had always been private sector but private sector developers and buildings and yeah that's and, cyclical it kind of went away during that. Oh, so we, sure. there wasn't much of that. We had tons of work, and then all of a sudden it just went away. And so they started populating and coming back, and multifamily mm-hmm. became very, apartment buildings became very popular. Do you find that the same business development and sales strategies that you were implementing then continue to be effective today, or what kind of changes have you seen or made to your approach? Well, one thing is I, I don't have to go on the road quite as much. I can go, a lot of people know me. So the only time I will go on the road now is if there are new personnel at organizations and then I need to go and introduce myself. And I usually, I think what you do in sales is you don't make it about you. You always, nobody will I will ever accuse me of ever talking about myself. I, I would always ask questions about them, usually because I'm a lot more interested in what they want out of a service. Do you think person. that's a trait that you have because you're a woman? Yes. Okay. Because I have seen some counterparts, yeah. and I'm like, stop talking, stop talking. So, but that's also a part of you know this building a story brand approach that we also coach our clients on, and that's. That's the mistake that a lot of businesses make is that they they think of themselves as the hero of the story and they're not the hero. Their clients are the hero and we, you, the companies that, you know, we're coaching, they're the guide that's helping the hero through, you know, all of these decisions and emotional turmoil that they're going through. So the client is the hero and then, you know, we're the guide. They're the star of the movie. Yes. And you are a at best, you know, a supporting cast member, but really probably more of a an MPC or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, we were always very one of our core values that we didn't have to think about was appreciation, because they can put anybody on their team, or they can select anyone, or clients can select anyone, and they selected us, and so our core value was to be appreciative to our clients and Mm -hmm. we did a lot to show people that we appreciated them other than not the least of which is just thank you for your business really appreciate it I'm surprised how often that doesn't happen (laughs) can I ask a question I'm really curious I do not work with my spouse Carly (laughs) Carly works with her spouse and you worked with your spouse still do tell us what it's like or tell me what it's like and give me an example of what is great about it and an example of why you probably would never do it again if, if that's the answer. You know, we did completely different things. So Dave was the goal. I cons- He was the founding principal of the company. I always deferred very much to him and didn't mind doing that. Um, he also really deferred to me on business and on money decisions and stuff like that because he is a designer and I was the operations. Sure. And so we did completely different things. He didn't ever really question, didn't feel like he had to worry as long as I was handling it. And I never felt bad about bringing in a piece of work and then just then giving that client over to Dave to take care of them because I knew he was going to do whatever it took to make the client happy Stand too. Stand in your own lane, basically. Yeah, your own I think lane that's of good expertise. advice. I can't imagine people, if they're both architects or they're both engineers and they're working together, that would be, um, but we're com- we complement each other in that mm-hmm. way. And we, of course, I will say that our banter probably did make some people uncomfortable because (laughs) this is just we debated and we were very honest and blunt about things and um I I I think not everybody talks to each other like that but it was out of the foundation was respectful it was just we no we're not gonna I'm not gonna do that well you need to do that you know there were some things like that so did you have to enforce any kind of boundaries because like Jane said, I work with my husband as well. And did you find or have any tips um, 
for the rest of us out here that work with your spouse of how to navigate that and how to set boundaries so that you're not laying in bed at 10 p.m. talking about you know your pipeline and this and that or maybe you do (laughs) no good point the way it all started was so intense and there was so much to talk about with the embezzlement and then Mm -hmm. with just building rebuilding the company and labor issues and that kind of stuff that it was kind of all we talked about for a Mm -hmm. while but um then something happened and we kind of got over a hump and we weren't so worried. You know, everybody was just mm-hmm. really scared back mm-hmm. then. It was tough. And we were both sacrificial people for our children and really for our employees and things like that. We were kind, we had sort of same values in that way. And so we did, I do remember there was one time when Dave said to me, we've got to learn to turn it off. So at six o'clock, let's come home and let's just try this for a few weeks where we're not going to talk about it. And anytime I would <laughs> talk about it, he, you know, he would like, hey, so we just said- So, we so he doesn't work at night because I, I know him well and I can see him working at night and on the weekends for clients. Well, that- Because he's very dedicated. For, yes, he is. Well, he, and that he does. We both do that. But when he's working, he's designing. He's not talking to me. Right. Okay. So we're not sharing. Uh, we both worked well into the evening. It's just we didn't mm-hmm. necessarily talk about everything, right. you know, okay. between us. But, yeah, we were pretty devoted to the company. And, and actually it was – I look back and, you know, we worked really hard and long hours. But it was fun in I a way. I think when you love what you do – like I love, love, love what I do. I wake up every day – and, and I love it. And I think it's hard when you're so passionate and you truly love what you're doing and you're working with your spouse, it's hard not to talk about it all the time. <laughs> I know. I mean, thank, thankfully we had children and sports and college graduations and things, other things to talk about. Right. But it was a big topic of discussion. And it's not so much now. I mean, we, now we come home and we read the paper and we read our books and we watch our TV shows and things like that. And so, uh, we really don't watch TV, but, um, we, well, you're also in a different kind of phase of your business owner, entrepreneur journey too, where, like you said, it's not, you're not in a scared place where you're, you know, you can kind of relax a little bit. How many years was it before, I mean, between you taking over or stepping in, not taking over, stepping in and then selling? I came in at 2010 and just started out as bookkeeper, right. you know, and kind of help. And then it just it metastasized into me eventually. After about three years, I became CEO because, and that was pretty welcome by that. I mean, he was happy for me to just take over it's interesting and when you have a professional services company and it's probably not a great idea like if you have an electrical if you have an electrician if you're you know and you're the electrician and you hire other electricians it's better to have someone who might be a little bit more business have more business Mm -hmm. acumen because a lot of times the actual architect or the actual engineer doesn't right and so they're and they don't like it because they didn't get into the business for that so I have always been interested in business and even when I stayed at home was a stay-at-home mom I had friends who were in business and all I ever wanted to talk to them about at events (laughs) and they they told me they would say this is when I lived in Nashville but they would say you're the only friend I have that ever wants to talk about work (laughs) about my job Mm-hmm. Um, but they were pretty high-powered ladies and, and went on to do very well in their um, careers. And so it was fun talking to them. And I just like hearing what people, how people run their business and what mistakes they've made and how they overcame them. Because you absolutely make tons of mistakes. You know? So did Dave suggest that you step in as CEO? Because I think that's just, I think it's impressive, you know, because a lot of men... I think it would be challenging for them to bring their wife on board and kind of give them the reins and, Mm -hmm. you know, have them... And have the team support that decision. I wonder, was there any... 
Well, they didn't, and uh, not everybody on the team on the uh, supported that. In fact, there were people there that had been for for been there for a very long time, and you know, they're they didn't necessarily have business acumen, but they didn't know that they didn't, mm-hmm. and they'd never run anything. They basically had just they. I mean, it was a, a closed book organization before I got there nobody mm-hmm. knew anything about how much money the company made or oh I kind of changed all that yeah and um but even then I remember understanding that they did not have a grasp of what it really took to run a company and um operational things and so I can see that how they would be have become upset that here this woman had walked in and she's the boss's wife and but I I really did prove myself before I I did not take over until I I was bringing in so much work and Mm -hmm. they weren't and eventually some of them either left and we we never lost anybody to a competitor really but um we we had to either lay people off um, because we just didn't have enough work, and um, so it was. It was a tough. It was just a tough time back then. But I, I will say, that was my first real taste of misogyny, and um, I didn't really think it existed until I <laughs> as much until because I was always kind of a sales when I was selling. You know, it was just some of it is just laughing a lot, you know, and telling jokes and getting to know mm-hmm. people, and so. I didn't run across it, but there were people that did not like that there was a woman who was coming in and taking things over. And what I did really was give everybody raises, opened up the books, you know, kind of explained them opportunity as much, yeah, as much more um, open than the previous processes. And I think the construction industry is really tough when it comes to that because. I mean, so I started in the industry when I was 22, fresh out of college, and I had to really hustle hard to earn the respect of a lot of men, a lot of, you know, senior project managers that have been in the industry for 35 years. And, you know, I have heard leadership, you know, say, oh, women, women don't make good managers because they're too emotional. You know, coming and coming from the guy who's sitting in the room Screaming, hissy fit, <laughs> screaming at people, and yeah, there's so, a, not much awareness in 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 that industry. Perhaps um, it's getting better. Mm-hmm. It's getting better. Do you have a hard time selling to say a university that's all male decision makers? No, <laughs> universities are kind of on the cutting edge really, of the other way. A lot of female leadership. Yeah. Okay. I'm and, just thinking awesome. of one in particular. I, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, I. I just wondered, like, did you have a hard time or not a hard time getting in the door to even have the meetings you talked about earlier? No, no. Well, for one thing, they're public sector. On the public sector side, they kind of have to talk to you. It's not like we're the taxpayer and they work for us. What, um, I asked you what it was like to work with your spouse, and I would like to know what the hardest part of owning your own business is. The hardest part of owning your own business is that it's like being a little bit pregnant. You can't be a little bit pregnant, obviously, and you are all in 24/7. There's no there's no net there and and it's funny in many ways Dave and I with our new staff that we grew kind of with a a, a new dawn um they almost looked at us like mommy and daddy. You know, we were kind of the the mom and dad of everybody. And we took care of them like that. And so, but you can't count on them mm-hmm. to do that. Mm-hmm. So I, I know I've told Jane before, you know, we weren't able to go on vacations together very often. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody needed to stay back and make mm-hmm. sure. And I was off at conferences and things like that a lot. I did a lot of traveling in the springs and the fall. So I was gone a lot. But... Um. Yeah, that's the hardest that's thing. The hardest and, and Jane, I w- we were talking earlier, and I told Jane, and I think this is exactly what you're saying, is that 
if you're going into business for yourself because you you want to relax, <laughs> you're going into the wrong thing because you are always working. I mean, I am always on. Yes. Weekends. Um, and, you know, funny, like you're the ones taking the trash out at night yep. and, you, you know, you're the ones who are buying the copy paper if it doesn't get delivered. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know the drill. So that's the hardest thing. So, but the best thing is that the sky's the limit. Yes. Nobody puts any, uh, nobody can put, you can't point to your boss and say, I can't make it because I've hit a glass ceiling because, you know, it, it's, and, and I like that challenge. Some people don't want that risk. And so they go work for a corporation, a large corporation, mm-hmm. their whole career, which, I think you have to have like a certain level of hunger. Like for me, like I love the thrill of the chase. And I think, um, you know, there are people I notice that are driven and it's in- inherent and innate and you can't teach it. Mm-hmm. And Dave and I both have that, but I noticed, you know, there are employees that come in and are per- perfectly happy just coming in and. Yeah. And I think like for me, I try to have a lot of awareness about, you know, the people that work for us. Like, I cannot expect the same nope. from them as what I'm, as what Evan and I are putting in. You know, I'll be up working until midnight some nights when that's required to get done what needs to get done, and I cannot have those same type of expectations for them. Um, everybody knows, you know, the bar's set high, and we're building a team of high performers, high achievers, but, you know, what what I'm putting in and what Evan's putting in is definitely going to look a little different and I can't hold them to that same. Well, and architects and engineers are born. They're not made. And you, so that narrows down the field a lot. That's so interesting. You said that. Why do you say that? Did you read that or do you just know that? So it's a skill that you're, especially engineers. But I mean, I don't know. First of all, you have to have design, some kind of design prowess. Not everybody has that. And then, you know, it's a very rigorous process that for design that, that our people have to go through. And it just narrows the field down quite a bit. Mm-hmm. So then you are, you can only hire those people. And they're, it's just a small pool of people. and. Not many of them are driven to run their own companies, mm-hmm. you know, to own their own company, to start mm-hmm. their own companies from basically scratch. Mm-hmm. So so can I ask, was the goal always to eventually sell the business? No. Um, we had two junior partners that we just opened up the company to. Um, one is an engineer and one's a landscape architect and they had our work ethic. So we basically said, you're going to be partners and if we ever sell, you're going to get 30%. But if we don't, what we started, I started a secession plan 10 years out. Mm-hmm. And what we basically said is in 10 years, Dave and I will either retire or we will not retire, whatever you guys want, but you're going to take over, we're just going to give you the company and what we did was just pay ourselves as we went we did not require them to buy in which is unheard of in our industry mm-hmm. it was it was you know a very good deal for them mm-hmm. but after they got a first row seat of how hard it is to run a business <laughs> mm-hmm. they decided and they came to us after five years and said I don't think we want to run this when y'all are gone mm-hmm. and we said okay we'll go out and try to find a buyer and so um, that wasn't hard I mean we had quite a few people interested in us because we did got got a lot done in the small amount of time that you know we started out I don't want to get too technical here but we started out just as landscape architecture but then the other site discipline in that industry is civil engineering and so we expanded in that but that is a lot more rigor and a lot more um, professional liability insurance and so it requires a lot more. And we expanded very quickly into that. And it, it happened very and fast. we're very competitive against big firms, big engineering firms. Including the one that ended up buying us. We were actually kicking their butts. I mean, we, we actually, our top line revenue was twice as much as their local 
satellite office. So you and Dave just knew that eventually you didn't want to be involved in the day-to-day, whether it was, you know, handing it over to these partners, and then when they declined, you're like, okay, we need to find a buyer. So what do you have to, how do you go, how do you go about that? How do you, how do you find a buyer? Well, I knew the market, and I knew who would want to buy us. And because I knew that's one thing you have to know is your competitors Mm -hmm. too. And so there was about four firms that, and and actually one actually approached us first, one that I would not have thought of, but they were in the running. And in the end, we narrowed it down to two. And then we, I just said, here's what it's going to cost. Here's what we want. Here's the deal. And whoever says yes first, you know. So did you have a coach or how did you determine, you know, hey, this is what it's going to cost? How did you? Good question. So in 2015, we actually merged with another engineering firm, Mm -hmm. much smaller, um, 120 people they had and they were out of Raleigh and they wanted to come and enter into the Richmond market by buying us. And they were an engineering firm. So we had to, that's where I had to go out and get civil engineering for the first time with that company after so I learned a lot from that experience and I kind of knew the merger acquisition process Mm -hmm. a little bit better Uh, but I read every book that you could have on it and interestingly these other firms don't do that I was Hmm. shocked and I'm like I knew a lot more than they did (laughs) on our podcast that we recorded the other week we said the same thing we were like anything that you want to know there's a book or a resource like that's what's great about the day and age we live in and it counsel people don't always read them or study them it's shocking yeah but they're especially right engineers they are usually the smartest people in their high school class and then they're smart people in the um in in the university and they go to school for five years uh, so and they're very smart they come out but this is the thing is you can be smart in one subject right. and not so much in the other and they don't often don't have that awareness are, are there many females in engineering more than you would think it's actually very much growing and we were very intentional about hiring women when and I think VHB is too our the current company is too and our director of our first engineer that we hired and our director of engineering was a woman is a woman Charlene is the best she is fantastic it's so interesting to see the feminine that she brings to that industry and how it has metastasized in terms of popularity and everybody our clients love her and I do think it's because she marries the brilliant she's actually brilliant you wouldn't know it but talking to her but because she's just very humble mm-hmm. but um she's brilliant engineer but she has a bedside what's the manner yeah bedside yes. manner because typically engineers are pretty quiet dry introverted well they're also lovely. no you can't do this and you can't right. do she's that very and positive and yeah and she's like well we'll figure out a way to do that you know now going back to being a woman um you coming into the firm and becoming the CEO, I assume that means you're an owner and therefore you can go out and get business as a, as a woman-owned business. Did that help you or set you apart? It helped at the beginning, Jane, because we had zero representative work in an industry where there were incumbents that had been on campuses for 50 years. Okay. So we are a good example of how that program that state program they call it SWAM which is small women-owned and minority they had goals for each project that came on the street that we'd like to have two percent women five percent women and we were it there were no other woman-owned civil engineering firms in Virginia great so they started saying, well, we'll give you a chance. Even though you don't have any work here, we'll give you a chance. So then so begrudgingly, we, they said, oh, we'll give you some work. And then you designed the hell out of it. And well, we were just, we were like response times were like people could not believe. This was the thing that I, I wanted to say is that 
we really had to focus on differentiators mm -hmm. when we were expanding into civil with zero representative work. And I, I just can't even impress upon you how crazy everybody thought we were to even try that. Nobody had done that in, in ever. Ever. I mean, not, not, I it's don't know been a long time. architect firm that then decided to do civil engineering. It's usually the reverse. The civil brings on a landscape firm. That's correct. Oh, and, and then compete against the big guys. And compete against them. And they were out to, at first they didn't think we would ever have anything. But then once we started winning work away from them, they started, you know, they weren't happy and our competitors. So uh, it, it was, it, we did graduate from that program once we got the relationships mm -hmm. and got on there. But I do owe some gratitude to the state for starting that program because it would have been a much harder thing to do. But I will say that if we had any Achilles heel, it was that we were much smaller than all these huge firms that we were competing against. And so if a $300 million project came up, they were, users were a little afraid to hire us because we weren't, they were afraid we might not have the bandwidth and we didn't, you know, project share across any kind of geographic footprint that a lot of the larger firms did. And so when we were bought, the organization that bought us did ask, do you think you're gonna, we're gonna lose work because you don't have SWAM? And I said, absolutely not. First of all, there's nobody else in the industry. There's no other woman-owned engineering firms in Virginia for oh. anybody to hire. And so that means we're just now catapulted and we're competing toe-to-toe -to -toe with all the big guys and we're one of the big guys now. Right. And we have the relationships. They know that we will respond to them. They know that we will do a good job. And so, it, it just wasn't a factor. So there are a couple questions here. Maybe before we ask you some tips for growing your business to sell, um, leadership tips. Tell me about managing people. I manage people and I'd love to hear three things or some, some leadership tactics that you imposed or imparted and that helped you with your growth of that firm and, and making it the rock star firm it became. Good question. I would say my style of leadership is very different from Dave's. And it helps to have a partner, two people in there, because there's kind of somebody has to be sort of the bad cop and somebody has to be the good cop. And Dave always got to be the good cop. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm bad cop. I know <laughs> I am. <laughs> and, um, but I don't have any qualms with confronting people. Um, so a leadership tip would be rip the band aid off. Yes, candor is important and letting people know where they stand. I actually personally would pr prefer that with my clients. I, I would love it if my clients came and said, look, we're having some problems here. I'm surprised how often that doesn't happen unless I ask. And I do ask our clients, how are we doing? You know, you need to let me know. Always pick up the phone and call me if we're messing up because it's inevitable. You're going to mess up. I mean, almost everybody does. Um, so leadership. Yikes. That's, I have to say, Jane, I don't have that completely down. I've made mistakes mm -hmm. and um, a lot of people don't really resonate with radical candor. Um, but um, let's see. You Maybe gave I me have a, a sheet. question though, okay. about confrontation while we're on this topic. Oh, you go. Um, what did I give you a sheet on? You gave me a sheet on um, rating people. And having discussions like mid-year and quarterly or monthly or annual reviews, it's really simple, much simpler than like my company, which overcomplicates things. Um, but it was really, it, would, it was a very disciplined uh, approach to rating your employees and knowing whether they're going to make it or, or not. And if they're not, having that conversation with, it's okay that it's not going to work out. So that sheet did not come from me. It came from a book, and the name of the book is Traction. Oh, that's the Traction book. Okay. And I will say that's a good leadership tip is don't try to reinvent the wheel yourself or figure this out. <laughs> Somebody somewhere a lot smarter than you has already done it. <laughs> Go find that person, even if it's a colleague or if it's a book, and read that stuff. I'm 
appalled and shocked how few people who are in leadership just won't go and, and read books. There's a one of them is black box thinking is is really good and it's a, it it's taken from the airline industry where you just need to read it. It's it's a really good okay. book. To, but Traction's another one. Um, and so I got that from that. The other thing is implementing what you read right. and executing that. And so that is my probably my number one tip in leadership is um, get help. You know, it's out there. Right. Read it. What's your piggyback question? I don't like confrontation. Um, Few people do. So how do you approach that? Like any... Any tips for handling difficult conversations? Like first thing in the morning, don't let it fester all day. Like what? Well, I'm a holistic. I'm a holistic thinker. So where I would say that comes from is I, and do not care what people think of me. First of all, one thing sales teaches you is you have to have a deep sense of self acceptance. And I know where I'm coming from. I know where it's coming from because I feel like it is better to tell people the truth so that they can meet the expectations. And you can say a lot of it is delivery. You know, you don't want to be screaming at people or anything like that. But um, or personal attacks or right. you know things like that. But I, you know, people need to know if they are honest about wanting to improve their career their life mm-hmm. and so that is one thing and then the the other is I, and to this I just don't care what people think of me and I I'm often surprised how many people are driven by what they're afraid that person is going to think of them I'm like well it's just brain matter in their head why, why would that matter like you know what it just I don't get that um but it's it's a big thing with people the other thing I would say is it just takes courage and to me that is my number one core value is courage and there's a quote I actually have it in my phone um this is a quote by Maya Angelou and it says courage is the most important of all the virtues because without courage you can't practice any other virtue consistently you can practice any virtue erratically but nothing consistently without courage oh, I, love that. I love that and courage is the most important thing to me without it you can't you can't have compassion without courage you can't have anything without it mm-hmm. so i have developed that muscle for a long long time mm-hmm. And um, early on, and now I have it. So, when did this happen for you? When did have you always not cared what people thought, or like when did you really kind of step into that mindset? I mean, who does? Who, everybody I, wants to unlock that. Tell us how to unlock that level. <laughs> well, I was born in a very religious household um, where there was a lot of fear and you know, hell and brimstone and Mm -hmm, all mm -hmm. that. And um, I I can't live my life based on what everybody thinks. I'll never be happy. I think what drove it is wanting to be happy and and wanting to live a meaning, you know, a life that I chose, Mm -hmm. not that someone else chose or I let their thoughts drive it. And that came from my brother who was born with muscular dystrophy and passed away in 1988 and I felt like I really I really felt like there's a at, at the end of saving private Ryan the guy is is crying at you know he, he's gone back and the old man has gone back who was in the battle and you know they told him earn this earn this you made it alive earn it Mm -hmm. and I felt that way my whole life earn this and you're never going to earn it if you let other people in other people's thoughts rule your life Mm -hmm. and when you have parents who don't get it really or you know they they did the best they could they were from a different I mean I'm not saying but and they had a child with muscular dystrophy they were a little nutty anyway I mean there was a a lot in their life but when they didn't get it then I'm like 
well, then maybe nobody else has got this figured out any better than I do. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to forge my own way and I'm going to mess up and I'm going to be okay with it if I mess up and get back up and figure it out again. I think we might be soul sisters. (laughs) (laughs) I'm really inspired by this courage conversation and by really not caring what people think. Was there like a a monumental moment? I know you said early early on in life, you know, you kind of took a path that was open to a lot of criticism and you were like, "I, I just don't care. But what are some tips to like lead with courage and to... You know, is there really anything that you can kind of tie that back to? I'm not sure you can teach it, but you can learn it. Um, One of it is, I have this little saying that I call, there's the law of incrementalism. And I sort of apply it to everything. So, for example, if I don't have time to work out for a couple of weeks or I'm just tired or, you know, there's just so much going on. I will still, while I'm waiting for my coffee to get through the coffee machine, I will still do sit-ups. We talked about this last week about the 1% The 1%, the compound interest. The compound interest Mm -hmm. of doing something in small increments. Then you get results instead of saying, I can't do an hour, so I'm not doing it at all. Right. Okay, that's exactly. So I do that every day. I do a little something like that every day. And I would say to, to build up your courage, just do a little, don't expect to be the most you know Xena the warrior the first day you know it didn't happen overnight it's just I was able to do a little bit and go oh well that I was able to do that you know it has to be a little scary at first I imagine well, it's right? always scary yeah. yeah it's always scary but I mean do it afraid anyway right that's the I have a sign in a, one of our uh, places in the house that says do something every day that frightens you Mm-hmm. And I think that's powerful because it's even like making a even a warm call to a potential customer that you you know you know someone who knows someone and they gave it and it's like ugh it's awkward it takes picking courage. up a phone and talking to picking up the phone and talking to somebody that you know that's not happy right but I would like if I were on their shoes I would appreciate that yeah. and 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 be it's not doesn't always happen but. You know, I generally want, it's not lip service. I generally want to know, what are we doing wrong? I I think people think that they're never going to do anything wrong or mess up. Mm -hmm. And you're, that's just silly. You know, you're, I mean, I, you know, I don't want anybody to think that I've done this progressively, just climb the mountain perfectly every day. Mm -hmm. You know, it's usually just go up a little bit and, yeah. and fall back down and then just pick yourself up and go again straight line no or up a mountain so did you ever struggle with imposter syndrome at all will you define imposter syndrome <laughs> so it's kind of it's basically for me it's kind of like this nagging voice that's saying oh you can't do this or you know don't oh, ask yeah. for that or so how do, how do you overcome i that? didn't have a college degree honey i was with engineers and and architects who may be the smartest people on the planet but if they certainly think that they are you know i um not all of them so but how do you go from that to being like i don't care what people think about me well i it's i always thought okay they might think i'm dumb i you know what do I care? I mean, it's like people, let me just tell you, I would prefer and I would recommend that you let people underestimate you. Mm-hmm. I've always been underestimated. Mm-hmm. It is my special power. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Give us some tips for what you did to position your company to then sell it. The most important thing you can do to sell your business is counterintuitive. And it is make yourself unimportant. Really? Explain that. Because you don't, they won't pay as much money if Dave and I are what they think they're buying. Mm -hmm. They will pay more money because they know eventually we're, you know, on our way out. And they will pay more money if you make it about your staff and about your reputation and and your repeatable business and you're you know so they'll buy a book they don't really want you or they don't want to buy like dave is the master 
And if he decides to retire in five years, then all your clients will leave. But if you have a, a good team. Exactly. Okay. Okay. What do you, or what makes you feel like a type slave woman? Is it the courage? Is it your daily mantras? Is it meditation? Is it your campfire circle? Like what, what makes you feel like you can go get a deal done that no one else has gotten done at your size? Well, I feel like I'm a work in progress, so I don't know that I'm already a type. Sl- I'm working to be one. <laughs> I think you are. are. I think you are, <laughs> well, Meryl. But I would say what makes me type slay is what I've said already, is there there aren't many people out there who are not afraid of confrontation, who have a lot of courage, will take a lot of risk, and who don't care what people think about them. There really just aren't. Yeah. And um, there's a lot of responsibility that comes with that because you want to treat people with respect. They deserve, everybody deserves that and compassion. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, if you're not too worried about what people think, then, you know, y- you still have to have value, the value system of being kind. Okay, so what piece of advice would you give a young entrepreneur starting a business or growing a business good question let's see (laughs) what would I say Um, don't think that you are less than the president of any company so what I would tell young people they tend to if for example if there's a client that we want to go after they tend to want to go to a lower level person who's hopefully going to introduce them to another lower level person that's a little bit higher and then hopefully work their way up to a decision maker. Whereas I have always said, I want to go talk to the CEO mm-hmm. to find out where they are and or who, you know, I would rather talk to the CEO, even if he's not the decision maker. A lot of times when I approach people, um, they say, oh, well, yeah, John down there in that department, well, I'll, I'll go talk to him. Well, that's great. If the CEO is talking, say, talking, telling him, hey, Meryl's going to give you a call here soon. Mm-hmm. And what I found early on as a 28-year-old when I was doing this is that older people like to help young people you know, a lot. And so don't be afraid. Don't sell yourself short and think that people are not going to, the way we got the UVA account is I went to a conference where the head of UVA was speaking in Chicago. And everybody thought it was crazy flying to Chicago for our little firm. But all you need is one job when you go after those because, you know, a job will pay that and, and then some. Mm-hmm. And he was the head of everybody that ever, that ever makes a decision on who they choose for civil engineering or architecture or anything else at UVA, which UVA is the top of the food chain. And I went up to him afterwards, introduced myself, and said, we have a small woman-owned civil engineering firm, and I'd like to come over and talk to you. Well, I reached out to him when I got back to Richmond. He invited our team to go to UVA. He opened up the doors. He, you know, he they bought lunch for us. They allowed us to come and speak and present to them and answer their question. He brought his entire team in, anybody that would ever make a decision on hiring people. And I don't think there's many people that would do that. I don't think there's, I think they're afraid. What are they going to think of me if I go talk to him? He's so important. I'm not. Or afraid of being told no. Well, that, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, Fear well, that happens every day, all the time. Yeah, that happens all the time. And you do have to desensitize yourself to that. Yeah. So somebody like myself, so networking does not come naturally for me. Like it is, it feels uncomfortable to kind of put myself out I'm there. shocked. I, I, no, seriously. I I'm believe her. I'm, believe her. I really do not, I would be very surprised about that. So for me, you know, I, I feel like I put 
so much effort and my heart and soul into, you know, our clients and showing up for our clients and giving them the best experience possible. And, you know, our marketing firm has really grown from word of mouth and referrals and repeat business. We really have a really high retention rate. Thank you. Um, but, you know, we I want to market ourselves more and continue to grow our business and kind of take it to the next level. So, somebody like me or any other person, you know, whose audience is a, is a B2B audience, what are some actual, you know, sales tips or business development tips? Maybe like your top three that you would recommend. Well, you know this, and I'm going to, I'm not going to tell you anything that you don't already know. Here is the formula that I used. I found out where all of the people go that make the decisions. There's some networking trade org that they would be at. Mm-hmm. I found out who they were. I went to that networking event. I went up and talked to them. I don't, one tip that I have is I, I feel like business cards are ubiquitous and that nobody really uses them. So I always say, oh, I forgot my business cards. Would you mind giving me yours? They always do. Oh, I love that. And then I write them an email the very next day. It was so nice to meet you last night. Can we get together and I'd love to tell you some of the stuff that we're doing. They almost always do um, get together with you. It might take two or three times to get a date and a time on mm-hmm. the calendar, mm-hmm. but they always do. And I, and if they don't in the first six months, I'm persistent. I just, they finally realized I beat them down. <laughs> I'm, I'm See, not going to take that's no a for an answer for me though is, so like cold email outreach, outreach in general, the persistency, I'm like, man, these people get hit with these requests every day. How can I be different? How can I, I think you have well, to differentiators, differentiators are huge. And I spent a lot of time with our team because I have to tell you, I don't really to this day even know what civil engineers do. <laughs> I'm not a civil engineer. I'm a salesperson. So, um, you know, I really wanted to find some different differentiator, and I, that's really important that you spend a lot of time. And even if it seems incremental and you know, in, uh, not significant, mm-hmm. it is. And you can again with the law and incrementalism. If you have ten of those little bitty things that don't matter, but they add up to a lot, mm-hmm. and so that is one thing. One of our differentiators that really made us stand out and I don't want to get too technical for our industry, but we cared about aesthetics, Mm -hmm. whereas most engineering firms are just kind of about mechanical Mm -hmm. pipes Mm -hmm. and water drainage. (laughs) And we sold ourselves as, well, you get the whole package. Not only do you get that stuff you have to have, but you end up with a pretty site. And nobody else was really doing that. Mm -hmm. I don't think they were. I mean, they might have spoken about doing it, but... Nobody did it as well as we mm-hmm. did. Mm-hmm. So, any other business development sales tips? Do you find? Do you think cold calling, like, do you you have no fear? It it seems like you know, like you don't care about what people think. And I'm gonna walk out of this podcast yeah. <laughs> a brand new woman, and I'm gonna hop on the phone tomorrow. Meryl calls everybody, <laughs> and everyone knows Meryl. But you built that over ten years. I did, and I will say that you do have to use some judgment because mm-hmm. I, when I say I was persistent, that's, I didn't call everybody every day or right. even every week or right. even every month. But if they, you know, I gave people plenty of time and then, so there is an EQ to it where mm-hmm. you just don't want to be that guy who just right. isn't picking up on the room. <laughs> isn't reading the guy. room. <laughs> Women always pick up. The guys not <laughs> the so really. Well, yeah. Um, so the other thing with negotiation, they say you've always got to be willing to walk away. And it's kind of the same thing. It's like, just what have you got to lose? Let's let's give it a shot. And like she said, I, I, I tend to do more business with people I like. Mm-hmm. You know what's surprising? Many people never ask for the order. Mm-hmm. They just knock on the door and... So here's what we do. Right. Yeah. And I, I'm one for asking for the order and always be closing. But many people just don't. They just kind of wait for you to give them work or you to say, we should work together. You well, are that's very a good persistent tip. to say, 
We what can we do? What can we do? We, how are we going to, how can we get here and work? That's yeah. the other thing I would say is a tip, you know, is just ask the question in a nice way. What's it going to take for us to, to be, mm-hmm. you know, your go-to? We, we really want this job. We really want this work. You're, you're on our list of people that we want to work with. Yep. And they like that. You know? So now that you've sold your business, what is the next chapter for Merrill? What does it look like? Oh, I wish I knew. Um, I don't want to retire. And I don't want to work this hard anymore. <laughs> I'll uh, give you a Bill Ray business card and uh, point you where you can apply. <laughs> Head of business development. That's my job. <laughs> You're going to... Um, I don't know the answer to that yet. And I am still searching for that. And, you know, I meditate every day. Mm-hmm. And I, when you do that, you start observing your feelings and you start observing your thoughts, which is a really good thing. Um, but you start getting to a point, or I've started getting to a point where I just sort of trust that the, the universe is going to mm-hmm. pr- present something eventually yes. when it's time it might be that I just want to sleep for about six months I would, I, I'm here for it let me tell you and, you know just not having to worry about how to make payroll is has been a, a big adjustment sure so my last question if you could go back and tell your younger self anything what would it be relax don't be so hard on yourself it'll all be okay don't I remember rushing to want to be where I thought I was supposed to be at that moment which was always kind of a ridiculous type of expectation kind of steals the joy from the present yeah I would say just don't think that you have to have everything figured out right away it's a journey which Dave is particularly good at. He's just more of a process person, and I am a bottom line person. So um, I kind of had these unrealistic expectations of myself and thought that I had to be somewhere and Mm -hmm. have something and attain something. And I I would really just say to young people, you're going to get there. Just work on it incrementally every day. Woo. Well, Meryl, thank you so much for joining us. I am more inspired than ever, and I am just going to go out here and slay it now, Jane. How about you? <laughs> I've always been inspired by Meryl. She's a good friend, and she's a tough person. Um, strength, I think, is what I see when I like look at your aura. Um, and I, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast, this new podcast, and kind of sharing your journey and things that will help our audience. This was because, amazing. Thank you, know, you so much. I was, I'm so honored. We're so excited to bring you new episodes, special guests, and share real-life advice to help you slay it. 